everybody. Welcome to another episode of Mentally Unscripted, the, the 50th time we've tried to record this particular episode. Super excited to re-record. Uh, as always, I am Paul and I'm here with Scott. Scott, how are you today? I'm, I'm, I'm good, but you know, a little miffed, a little upset. I uh, was listening to the Fifth Column podcast today and uh, Matt Welch, one of the co-hosts of the podcast, uh, he used the phrase incentives matter. Oh, and no. he did not give mentally unscripted any attribution. And I, I demand justice. I mean, he's obviously we- listening to our podcast. He's stealing our ideas. Darn it. I want some justice. Um, Do you want to no, follow but, up uh, with our lawyers? Yeah. Yeah. We'll get the mentally unscripted legal team, uh, our crack legal team on the case. Um, mm-hmm. but, but no, but seriously, I mean, it was good to, uh, to hear him say that. Um, you know, certainly we're not the first ones who came up with it. Um, but it's, it's true. Incentives matter. Uh, everyone needs to remember that. And I think, you know, we're going to hear it again in this podcast today. You know, the idea that incentive alignment, you know, uh, is, is a big thing. Um, but how about you before we get to the podcast? How's the, how's the great move of 2021 coming along? (laughs) 2020, 2021, perhaps 2022. At <laughs> yeah. some point, I know it will end, but uh, the, the suffering and misery will, will keep on going as long as we underperform. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's, so it, we're, we're past the two weeks to flatten the curve thing here and yeah, <laughs> on the move, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah I, I'm pretty sure I'm, 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 I'm getting a U.S. government length um, changes in, in our goalposts, right? It's right. like, yeah. <laughs> oh, we're going to be done in two weeks. Well, two weeks, so we're done with enough to, to continue on to stage two or three. Right, right. Um, <laughs> No, it's it's good. My sister uh, came in uh, this weekend. She had to go through some stuff in the house, and we're just we're going through years of of uh, collected material from schoolwork to pictures that we drew as five year olds to love letters, um, all this stuff that uh, I think more sane people probably would have uh, disposed of years ago. And now we're just finally getting to the point where we're doing it, and it's it's cathartic that we are going through the process. It's also maddening because it's just so much sorting and sifting and thinking, but, uh, we, we, we will get done. We will prevail. You know, you gotta, you gotta maintain hope in times of darkness, maintain hope. I saw star Wars as a kid that has to, that stuck with me. Right. (laughs) Right, So, uh, (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to keep the hope going for now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to ask how many, forgotten kitchen gadgets did you find in the back of some cabinet that your mom now insists she's going to use <laughs> oh my gosh it's it's a it's an army i mean i, I feel yeah. like uh i feel like any professional chef would just be ashamed when, when they saw the amount that they've collected right I, it, you know and it really does it speaks to the creativity right that people are able to niche down further and further with these devices and these gadgets for taking out the smallest imperfection in an apple yeah. Uh, it's, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, I, I forgot that we had that nutcracker orange peeler, but now that I know we have it, I would use it. Well, of course we're going to use it. I, I've been wondering where that was for 15 years. It's like, well, right. you, didn't, you didn't go looking for it. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, oh boy. Um, well, all right. Well, your, your parents don't listen to this podcast, do they? <laughs> they do. No, we're just no, joking. They don't. Yeah, we're just joking. I love them. No, they're they're great people. Uh, they've been great parents. So um, happy happy to help them. Just uh, just a little exhausted, but um, mm-hmm. you know, a nice pivot to the topic of today, which is policing. And uh, Scott and I actually originally recorded this episode uh, a few weeks back, uh, right after the uh, Derek Chauvin trial was 
was released, uh, the results of that trial. And it was a great conversation. And unfortunately, we had some audio issues and decided, listen, the conversation's good enough. Let's, let's go re-record it. And what we wanted to do uh, with this discussion is attack the topic of policing from a first principles um, point of view, where we really get down to the heart of the matter of asking the question of why do we need police in the first place? What, what do they do? Uh, asking ourselves if, if, if they serve a purpose, is the purpose being met? And then if it's not being met, how do you actually start to think about the changes? And the reason we wanted to approach it this way is because it, it allows us to step back from some of the tension and anger that we see in the traditional media outlets, which focus a lot on sort of, you know, I, I back the blue. It doesn't matter what, what anybody else says. They, they, are, they are justified and right because society is so violent versus the other side um, that you're hearing, which is defund the police. It's a racist system. It's a uh, white supremacist system that needs to be dismantled in order for us to achieve better outcomes. And Scott and I talking offline, I think we have, we have some many areas of agreement, some areas of disagreement, but primarily we, we want to be able to take some of that tension out of the discussion, inject it with a little bit more reasoning uh, so that people can have better dialogue on a topic that's supercharged. I, I can think of very few things right now that feel like they're just being covered with gasoline lit on fire anytime it comes up. So that's what we're going to attempt to do today. And uh, But before, before we get into that topic, uh, wherever you're listening to us, if it's on uh, Apple, iTunes, if it's on uh, Spotify, if it's, if it's on YouTube, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, leave us some comments, your thoughts on what we're missing, uh, what you like about the podcast. Uh, please subscribe, sign up, leave some comments, leave a review. We'd, we'd just love the feedback and hear, hear what we're missing. And, and uh, we're always looking to learn. So with that, let's let's start with a little bit of discussion about our history with the police, because I, I think that's relevant with how we perceive them. So, I mean, growing up, Scott, how did you what was your interaction with the police and what was your, your perspective on, on them? Yeah. Yeah. So growing up, I mean, I was I was never a bad kid um, outside of the occasional, you know, cops showing up and saying, you know, what are you doing here? Go home or something. Um, I never had any bad experiences with them. Uh, when I was younger, um, one of my best friend's dads uh, was a police officer. And then uh, when I moved away from Clearwater, I grew up in Florida. When I moved away from Clearwater, Florida and uh, moved to Plant City, Florida, um, the guy who ended up being, you know, one of my best friends, his, probably my best friend, uh, his dad was a sheriff. And so, um, and, and they were good people, right? They certainly weren't the types of people that I would consider, you know, were going out and purposely trying to hurt people. And, right. you know, in growing up in my community, we had the, the officer friendly, you know, which was an officer who came to talk to our classes, like, you know, second, third grade, talked to us about policing, you know, it was very, um, very approachable, very friendly. Um, but, you know, that was a different time. I mean, they didn't show up wearing body armor and, you know, yeah. carrying batons and, and have riot gear and helmets on. And so, yeah, you know, so growing up, I didn't have, I didn't have so much hesitancy around the police that I do today, but yeah. times have definitely changed. And I mean, I know you, you grew up in a different environment than I did. So what, yeah. what was your experience? 
Yeah. So I, I was raised overseas. Uh, my parents worked for an oil company in Saudi Arabia. So I, I was I was raised on a compound and we actually didn't have police. We had security forces uh, that didn't have any weapons at all. Uh, they had walkie talkies and it was more about community um, civilian type of issues. So if someone's being, um, I don't want to say like, you know, you're, you're, you're in an environment where maybe people are getting into fights, they would show up and, and try and break it up. But we, we didn't have, um, at least on, on my little compound, we didn't have actually police. Outside of the compound, you had military police, which had actual submachine guns, machine guns. And um, so they're more of a, an outreach or an outgrowth of the, of the military. And um, in my house, we were always taught that the police have a function um, that they're there to protect us, and also you have to respect them. So this, uh, they have a position of authority in law. So if you get pulled over for for speeding, as an example, uh, comply with what they're asking. Uh, don't don't give them any lip. Um, and it, part of that is just this: it was the concept that they are are serving a uh, kind of a greater good, if you will. Um, the 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 time that I actually was around police, if you will, was uh, during the Gulf War. I lived in uh, New Mexico. And there, uh, similar to Officer Friendly, we had police uh, that would come in and, and talk to our classroom about a DARE, drug abuse resistance ed. So they were trying to encourage uh, everyone to be aware of issues with people trying to give you drugs and to stop you from, from doing that and talking to you about the issues of drugs and, and what the cops were trying to do to prevent it. And, you know, it's being in New Mexico, New Mexico is, it couldn't be further from sort of the environment I, I described that I was raised in where, you know, you had security guards that had no real weapons and really very little violence that you had to deal with, right? Uh, it was a very stable type of environment. Whereas New Mexico is kind of, in some ways, I thought of it as the Wild West. I mean, we would watch 10 o'clock news and you would hear about uh, gang violence. You would hear about, um, you know, remote towns where they had different uh, levels of violence. And so you would see that and it kind of reinforced this idea that we're, we're going to, you know, at least in my mind, it reinforced this idea that we needed uh, police, some, some way of, of providing safety. So. You know, and, and I so so I think both of our experiences as, as children was more of uh, almost a 1950s view of the police, right? That, that they serve a function, they serve a purpose. They're here to protect us. They're here to do something good. And um, and then you know, I know we talked about this last time that our environments were probably, um, I mean, it's one type of environment. Maybe you could call it middle class environments or upper middle class, right? Uh, versus if you were raised in a lower income area where your experience may be different, right? Yeah, exactly. So I mean, I'm, it certainly wasn't the idyllic leave it to beaver. Uh, yeah, it certainly wasn't the idyllic leave it to beaver environment, um, but it was an environment where, you know, the cops came and got your cat out of the tree um, to paraphrase ice yeah. tea. Um, it, so, th yeah, it, I mean, it was just a lot different back then than it was. But I'm sure yeah. it, there are a lot of people who grew up at the same time that we did who lived in different areas of the country where they were already starting to see um, the uh, issues with the police starting to crop up with the overuse of force. Um, mm -hmm. It just you know, hadn't spread, I think, to our nice little suburban communities yet. Yeah. Well, and 
I, I think another aspect of that is just um, which which hints on hits at one of the challenges that I see is is just the difference in socioeconomics, which really plays into um, the the engagement with the police, right? Where you have poor neighborhoods uh, that I, I've seen that struggle because in the poor neighborhoods you you have higher levels of violence, higher higher levels of crime, be it related to drugs, related to uh, theft, uh, related to um, physical assault that ends up driving more interactions with the police. Uh, and then with that, you are going to have a different view of how you're operating with the police. Are they actually providing safety or do you feel like they're, they're doing something else? Right. Uh, and that, I think that gets to the, so, so I guess, let me back up for a minute. I want to make sure we're clear on that. Right. So we, we kind of shared our experiences also realizing our experience may not be consistent with some other people. Like for, for instance, those who are calling for abolition of the police, uh, when you hear their words, a lot of times they're talking about, well, you don't understand what it's like to be in my neighborhood and have to deal with the police. And, and I'll acknowledge, I don't, I don't have those experiences. Right. Um, but but part of that also, we have to also say when we talk about solutioning, when we start talking about getting to that next step of, you know, what is policing? Why do we need it? And then how do we how do we want it to operate? Uh, not all of it is going to be experienced across the same spectrum. So. So uh, let's get into the next part. So we, we kind of we shared our experience, what we thought of, uh, what, we, what we think of police and. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about why we think police exist or why, what, what, what is the purpose and the role of the police? So from your perspective, um, maybe, maybe what is the ideal view of what a police force is and why, why they would need to exist in the first place? Yeah. So, you know, let me start off by saying that in my world, a government, to the extent that I think we should have a government, it should exist to, to protect private property rights. And I'm giving private property a pretty broad definition here to include you, the person, as well. Um, yep. And that should be the sole role of government. And so the police being the, the visible enforcement arm of that, the police should exist to protect your private property rights. And that should pretty much be the end of it. Um, so they should be there to make sure that no one hurts you, no one steals from you. Um, but outside of that, you know, I think society would do a pretty good job of, of self-regulating. And I know that's, that's a little bit different than what you think, what you think. Um, so what's, what is your thoughts on why the police exist? Yeah. Well, yeah, to me, there's um, this concept of, of safety. And I, I think a lot of this has been informed with, you know, living in Chicago for over a decade and seeing, the challenges that you have in um, the poor, poor communities where they don't have safety. They, they legitimately have to worry about bullets coming into their homes. Uh, they worry about their children having altercations with either gang members or drug dealers that can harm their children, right? Uh, physically, mentally, sexually. And it creates a, a very... Uh, a very negative environment for people to grow and learn. So there's there's this concept of human capital, and the the fact that those people in these communities, their 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 highest and best use is human capital is is being squandered because they're stressed out and they can't actually achieve it because they're constantly having to deal with safety concerns. So to the degree that we have a society, I I, I would I would I think to myself, okay, does a society want to deal with more or less violence? 
And I think on, on balance, most people would say, I'm, I'm, I want to deal with less, less violence. How we get there is important, right? You could have a, an autocratic state, which, which has military um, policemen everywhere with guns that are constantly pointed at people um, and, and injecting fear into the population such that they, they don't want to step out of line. I think that's a bridge too far. I think on the other end, uh, the, the question of, you know, having having no kind of safety. Um, you know, if you took the police out entirely, would we have a, a larger amount of safety? Uh, I, I, I struggle with that a little bit because I feel like, well, then if, if that was the case in these areas where they're under police, why do we see rises in crime? So, um, yeah, so I, I, I do think about the safety element of it. I do. I, your, your definition, I think, works really nicely and cleanly because it gives the individual um, autonomy and rights. Um, this, this idea that we have uh, rights as, as citizens, but also as just as, as people. And then the, the, privacy, the, the private property rights that we've, we've agreed to as a community, right, that, that we're going to enforce. It's, it's clean that way. But safety, ultimately, to me, is, is really something that I, I, I really, I think long and hard about. And it's, it's, it's easy when you, you know, I just saw yesterday this uh, terrible story of a four-year-old kid uh, who was found dead and killed by an 18-year-old. Uh, at least that's the suspect uh, in Dallas, uh, where I used to live. And it's to me, it's heartbreaking. And again, it goes back to this idea of, you know, we, we need, you know, you could you could call it private property. I mean, the, the kid has their own property. That's that's themselves. Um, they, they need to be protected against someone who would commit that kind of crime. Um, now, I, th- again, that's, that's sort of my ideal state. A lot less violence, giving... Um, more uh, weight to the individual uh, and in trying to reduce the the amount of crime that we have because it's just I have to imagine there's a better society when those property rights and that safety are in place yeah yeah you know let me ask you this though so in in a state where property rights are paramount and the state doesn't exist for any reason beyond that we would for example not have the war on drugs Okay. And so how much of the violence would just not having the war on drugs eliminate if you don't have the uh, drug dealers and the drug cartels and the gangs all fighting each other out for territory or, you know, whatever, um, whatever it is that they fight about, um, how much violence would that, how much violence would that take out of society and reduce the need for a armed force to protect the citizens? Um, Yeah, and, 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 and so actually, that's, it, I think it just, yeah, I, well, I was just going to say, I think it shows that, you know, this isn't a question that exists in a vacuum. Um, the, right. the answer to what type of police force we need probably needs to be looked at in light of what laws we have and what our goals are. Yeah. So in a society that's relatively free, where, again, the government is here to protect private property rights, a lot of the laws that are creating the violence or that are leading to some of the violence that we're seeing, just they wouldn't exist. And so we wouldn't have those environments. Um, what do you think well, about that? Well, yeah, I, I think it's a great question. And I know my on my own trajectory, I used to be very much uh, in basically legalizing all drugs and taxing them. And I think that perspective was, was born of that, right? Looking at the war on drugs and seeing that it's not achieving better outcomes. And so there's this idea of criminality versus 
mental health or other types of deficiencies in health. So, if, you know, we, right now in the U.S., we have a huge problem with people being uh, using fentanyl uh, and meth. Right, meth is is very um, pervasive in uh, rural parts of the country, and it's again going back to this idea of poverty. It's being used by people um, that don't have. Um, I, I mean. I, I'm using this broadly, right? I think you could you could cite studies that would that would go into more specifics, but it's it's despair and a lack of hope that things are going to improve. Plus, it's it, in some ways it can be an economic um, opportunity for those who are looking for you know they don't they don't see jobs out there that are paying. Uh, they can they can cook up some drugs and potentially sell it to other people, right? So there's there, there's a variety of issues, and, and you're right. I mean, I think I think that's a very valid point that we don't exist in a vacuum. The, 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 the problem with, I guess, there's a difference between cr- criminalizing it and then, and then also assuming that it's good for society. And I, I struggle with that a little bit, if, if I'm honest, that there's no negative offsets if we have more people on drugs. So I, I think I could, I, could, I could get to the point where I, I would say, well, we should not spend as much time trying to police drugs. I mean, I, I think I looked at the stats, these overwhelming... Um, drug arrests are around marijuana, right? And I think many of us of our generation or younger are looking at that saying, well, that's, that's just a poor use of resources and time and of human capital that's, that's being locked up uh, for a drug that doesn't have the impact of, let's say, fentanyl or meth. But even on the meth and fentanyl side or heroin or, or crack, are you, treating pe- are, you, are you arresting people, putting them in jail because they are abusing these drugs, or do you treat it as more of a mental health type of issue or lack of opportunity issue and then attack it that way, right? Or think of it that way. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that I agree with the idea that if we just, well, we, we just assume society is okay with all drugs, that we don't have a lot of negative externalities. Right. Um, and this is, I haven't done this, but I know in areas of the world, um, Portugal, I'm thinking of where they, they ended the war on drugs and they started treating drug use as a public health issue rather than a criminal issue. Um, you know, so obviously you're not going to get rid of drug use and it's going to be a problem. But, you know, one thing to consider though is, you know, I mean, how many of us, if drugs were legalized tomorrow, are going to run out and start shooting up heroin? I mean, I, I think you know, most of us won't. Um, but if we start treating it as a, ment- mm-hmm. as a, a public health issue, there would be less stigma around it. Um, so people who are addicted could go get help. Um, they could go to doctors and mental health professionals, people who can help them maybe not get off of it completely, but can help them control it. Um, you know, we, yeah. I've read articles, you know, talking about there, there are people who are addicted to opioids who are under the care of a doctor who are just fine contributing members of society, right? They're not out there, mm-hmm. um, you know, killing people. They're not out there buying heroin on the black market and things like that. And it's, it's when, it's when we push the people, it's when these laws push the people outside of the public health system and into the criminal system that we start to see a lot of the deaths from fentanyl and from the, you know, the, you know, the black market, the, the, you know, the stuff on the black market that's laced with who knows what, um, yeah. you know, is cooked and, you know, you know, created in, I don't know, unsanitary conditions and, you know, needle sharing, you know, and all the, all the negatives that we hear about it. Um, so 
you know, it's a, it's a highly complex system and exactly what would happen and what the outcome would be. I don't think anyone could really say, um, because a lot of it, again, would depend on what, what public health infrastructure we put in place. We, we certainly couldn't just decriminalize drugs and then just say, okay, everybody go have a good time. You know, there, there would have to be some mechanisms in there to help the people who want the help. And yeah, I, I, this is, I think, the challenge of the modern era is having both the compassion, if you want to call it that, to say, listen, these people that are on drugs that are nonviolent, they, we need to treat them as, as suffering from, from a health issue versus criminals. But also then saying our, our societies, particularly in public, don't need to be uh, dealing with this every day. So we, we don't. We don't want to decriminalize these types of behavior and then have to deal with needles on, on the ground like you do in Seattle and San Francisco and other cities that are trying to have a more compassionate approach to these issues, but then are dealing with the externalities of it. And they, they just ignore the externalities, right? Yeah. There's, there's a cost either way. Yeah, I mean, I, and so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and not to turn this into a podcast on the war on drugs, but I think... In, in this, the system that I'm thinking about and that I've read about, it, it it wouldn't be that you could just, you know, go to the the corner quickie mart and, you know, buy a, you know, a six pack of needles and heroin and, you know, shoot up and throw your needle on the ground, right? You would still have to go to a clinic or something to get yeah. your, your fix, so to speak, I guess. And so you wouldn't be yeah. walking out with the needle and just throwing it on the ground. Whereas now, you know, people have, I've read stories about employees at you know, Starbucks bathrooms getting stuck by needles that were put in the trash or that were, you know, just left on the floor, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, and even in a system where we do, where it's legal, where it's legal and we treat it as a mental or as a public health issue, right. We're still going to have the people who, who exist outside of the system. Right. So yeah. I think the question is, is, you know, what we're not going to eliminate it entirely, yeah. the deviance around it, but what is going to do the most to reduce it? You know, what is going to, I mean, let's think there's no point in turning an otherwise good citizen who, you know, who, had a back injury years ago and got hooked on opioids as a criminal because now they're having difficulty getting off of it and they're going out to the black market to buy heroin. Um, You know, these are good productive members of society who I think, you know, deserve to, well, as a, I mean, as a country, we'd be better off having them be contributors, offering value, not running around on the, you know, the back alleys and dark streets of the cities trying to, you know, score their drugs. Um, so, but yeah, it's, yeah, and I, it's a hugely complex I, question I and, you know, maybe that's another podcast yeah. we could just get into it on. I, I think so. Um, so, so let's, cause I, I think it is a good discussion, but probably, uh, probably one that would, that we could unpack for, for a full hour. But if, if we return back to this sort of premise, we, we kind of have this idea of, you know, private property rights is, is intended to be sort of the, the purview of some kind of authority, right, um, to, to enforce. So I, I guess my question to you would be, uh, if, if we, we agree that that's sort of the, the premise, that the, some kind of force is needed to enforce that rule, why, um, why argue that it has to be an external force versus individuals, right? So 
I've got, uh, you know, in this argument, I feel is, is going to be more uh, perhaps conservative that says, listen, I've got my gun. I've got my uh, my fence. I've got my my dogs and my weapons. I can defend my home. Uh, I can defend my own private property. Right. Um, I don't need the government or the police to do it for me. Uh, when you hear that argument, how, what do you think is, is is that is that a sound reasoned argument? Is it missing something? Well, I think it's missing something because we still need due process. And when you when you leave enforcement entirely to the individual who was wronged, um, you know, we've mentioned before, right? Your your emotions, your your gut reaction can can cloud your judgment. And so I think it's it, you know, it's good to have that third party there who can step in and look at things more objectively. So if, um, you know, you're, you think that I stole from you and you grab your gun and come after me and shoot me, right. There's, there's no coming back from that. Even if you don't kill me, right. That's a, you know, that's not a reversible decision and it's pretty high stakes. But if we have that intermediary that we can call and say, Hey, you know, this is missing. I think Scott stole it, right. They can go and do their investigation. They're not going to come, you know, guns blazing. Hopefully (laughs) they're not going to go guns blazing, breaking down my front <laughs> yeah. door and, you know, shooting yeah. my dog and everything. Um, you know, they're, they're going to conduct their investigation and, and, and doing it the way they, they should be doing it. So, you know, I do think, you know, I think justice, you know, should be left to the individuals in, in certain situations, but in most situations, I think it's good to have that, what, what should be a neutral third party um, intervening to make sure that the investigation is done properly and that um, justice, mm-hmm. how, whatever that looks like, is, is served so that both sides, um, you know, get satisfaction. Or I should say that both sides get their day, right. I, day in court, so to I, speak, I, because both sides get their say. Right. Yeah. I, so I, I think that's what a lot of people need to. Uh, for, first of all, I, I, I agree with that argument. I think when people say, ask the question and maybe they're, they're jumping forward to solutions like, like abolition. Uh, then you have to ask these types of questions. Well, who, who's actually going to adjudicate? Uh, are we, are we going to have, uh, sort of individual ideas of what justice is? Are we going to have a, a system that we have in place, which has a set of rules of conduct that you have to follow? Because if, if we don't do that, then everyone's operating truly individually. And it's very difficult to coordinate as a society. And, um, you know, I, I just started reading a book about, uh, I think it's called How Nations Fail. Uh, it, was, it was written, I, I want to say, about 10 years ago. And it's about the, uh, the premise of it is, is something to the effect of that nations that have a set of rules that uh, give liberty to individuals and have, have processes and institutions that support that basically thrive over those that don't. And uh, that's the argument that they make. And it, it really does resonate with me when I think about this idea that, you know, we're, we're, we're individuals and we have rights. We're able to coordinate with others uh, and explore our, our creativity uh, in, a, in a way without infringing on other people's rights, right? It gives us the maximum amount of freedom to achieve more. And society benefits from that. We, we can benefit from it, but also society can as well. And contrast that with an area where everyone individually is coordinated based on their own liberty. Their definitions can be different on what our rules and regulations should be. 
you have a higher cost that everyone has to pay in order to coordinate. So, you know, it's, it's kind of an esoteric kind of way of looking at the problem, but it, it really does come back to if, if you don't have a, um, some kind of third party to coordinate, uh, you will likely have more violence. Um, you, you may still have property rights that are enforced, but um, with, a, with a higher cost associated with it, right? And, and, and to your point, the, the idea of due process, I mean, if, if everyone, if, if the person like borrows a rake and the other person says you stole the rake, it's like, well, I've, I've borrowed it three or four times in the past, you never had a problem. Well, now I'm saying you're stealing it and they, they, they have an issue. It, it's, it's complex, right? I mean, it really is. There, there's other factors that play, that play, and that's why you usually have third parties that can provide some kind of context and help those people uh, work through the problem. Uh, so, so I think, I think then from that perspective, we're in agreement that some kind of third party is beneficial for us to negotiate from a societal perspective to achieve property rights or safety, however you want to define it. Exactly. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and you know you. You mentioned abolish the police, and one of one of the problems that I have with the, that concept of abolish the police or defund the police is that these they seem to be amorphous definitions that change from moment to moment. Um, mm-hmm. But I saw something recently or heard on a podcast where someone who was huge on defund the police um, or was really advocating defund the police was presented with information showing that well in areas where police presences have been reduced crime has gone up and their response was well we when we said defund we didn't really mean defund it's like well what did you mean um and so it's it's a moving goalpost you know what exactly does abolish or defund mean right like we said right there there there's gonna have to still be some third party there to investigate and adjudicate disputes so, so I think the question really comes is, you know, what, what does that look like? And when we talk about right. abolish, you know, the other problem that we have, like with that is this idea of Chesterton's fence, you know, so Chesterton's fence is this mental model that you know, says, you know, you're walking through a field and you come across a fence. You have no idea why the fence is there. Well, it's not a good idea to just tear down that fence until you know what the fence is doing, right? It may be keeping something out, keeping something in, you know, it could be serving some purpose that you're, you're going to regret if you tear it down. And I think, and I think we're largely seeing that with the police, right? If we abolish the police, I think we're going to see a lot of unintended consequences because we don't really, we don't understand or we're not in agreement on why we even have the police. And so from a first principle perspective, right, I think we need to, to come down to that is like, why, why do we have the police? What, what should the police do? You know, we've seen this concept of law inflation, you know, where, and there's a book called um, like three felonies or something where the premise is that there are so many laws and regulations out there that everyone commits three felonies a day without even knowing it. And so is that an environment that we, that we want, right? Do we want an environment like that where we have police out there trying to enforce God knows how many laws on people who don't even know what they're doing as breaking the law? Or do we want a simpler system? Uh, You know, these are all questions that need to get asked. Yeah. Well, I, I I agree. And I, I'm also against abolish the police for, for the reasons that we just discussed, right? That, that 
we don't have environments where, uh, at least it doesn't appear to be, where we just devolve into a state of, of safety and property rights enforcement without a third party, right? It's either going to be enforced by individuals or it's going to be enforced by a third party that's agreed to by a group, um, what we call governments. So uh, abolishing that, uh, to me, uh, what from, from everything I've read, sounds like we want to give that power to a different party. We don't actually want to abolish it. We we want to give that party to uh, power to a third party, and then it's not very clear what that third party is. Um, yeah. Now. Yeah, and so, so yeah, maybe we need to. Oh, I was, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say maybe we need to make a distinction on what we're abolishing. Are we abolishing the the department, this unit that we call this organization we call the police, or are we abolishing the laws and the powers? Because, uh, like you said, the enforcement mechanism is going to shift somewhere else. Question is where. Yeah, is, is where and, and, and what you're seeing right now, I, I want to be very uh, careful to look at existing crime statistics because it's easy to jump on them. If we look at the rise in crime in uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis or New York City, San Francisco, L.A., it's easy to point at those and and say, well, look, they, they defunded the police. They talked about bringing the police, um, uh, taking away some of their powers. And now we're seeing a spike in crime. Well, you're, you're not looking at these, this data in isolation. We've also had a year of lockdowns uh, in which people didn't have the ability to, to work. Uh, you, you also are then going to have issues of mental health where people are struggling with depression, uh, with uh, feelings of anger and violence. So it's, it's, it's certainly possible that the rise in crime is related to the uh, some of this discussion, maybe specific actions taken by by people like in San Francisco, as an example, I know the the D.A. there has been accused of basically just allowing people to run roughshod. They, the police uh, bring in criminals that have, let's say, a violent history. Right. Not, I'm not even talking about the full base. Maybe some of them that have, haven't done as, you know, um, uh, things like just just smoking a cigarette in the wrong time part of the city. No, these, these are violent criminals that have been caught breaking in uh, armed robbery and they're not being prosecuted. And part of that is, is that that individual has talked about the fact that we have too many people incarcerated. So they want to take a different approach to incarceration. Um, and and this does get to the point that this is a very complex issue, which makes it which which should tell you at some point it's OK to say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the answer is because, um, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about the offset. If, if I make a choice in one direction or another, I maybe I, I don't know really what all the second, third and fourth order consequences are. Um, but I, I do think, as, as you said, it's it's clear that someone's going to enforce it. We should be asking ourselves, are we getting the, the right um, the right bang for our buck on that enforcement? Right. Because that's the next part. If we if we if we've agreed that we um, there's a reason for for having police, it's it's enforcing third party uh, or our individual rights or property rights. We need to have that. Then the question is, are we getting the right kind of outcomes with the existing system? And I think that's probably where we have the most friction in in society today, where you have. Some people arguing that, you know, given the number of police um, engagements with the, with society, it's not it's not uh, crazy that you would have this this number of people being shot by the police or, or having, um, you know, violent altercations with the police. 
And you have others saying that I think there's there's simply too many people being killed, right? Um, so I, I guess from your perspective, how do you think we look at how we measure the effectiveness of our police system, um, I guess, at large, at a macro level? Yeah, I, you know, that, that's really hard um, because, like you mentioned, different people are going to view it different ways. Different people are going to have different desired outcomes. And, you know, this reminds me of uh, the uh, false consensus effect where you look at your situation and you project that onto everyone else. So we, you think that, you know, I, I want the police to just be a minimal presence there to protect private property rights. And then I look at everyone else and I say, well, you know, I'm reasonable. So obviously how can you think differently than me? Because you want police to be more enforcement, you know, to provide more, more safety. Um, you know, so when we're asking that question, right, we got, we have to keep that in mind and we're not going to come up with a perfect system that's going to make everyone happy. Right. Um, and, and this is maybe a, a, a solution where, you know, we, we can't have a one size fits all solution. We can't have Chicago doing the same thing that, you know, plant city Florida is doing because they are different size communities with, um, different attitudes, uh, you know, different, different range of socioeconomic, uh, citizens and, and everything. Um, but, but, you know, one thing, when I start thinking about this, I, I always come back to the question is like, well, how did we get to where we're at? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how did we go from that officer friendly, you know, my dad, my best friend's dad is a sheriff, you know, who's a super nice guy and fun to be around to this, you know, t- to this idea of the police is jackbooted thugs, shoving old men down, and, and, and like you said, you know, to come back to this idea of law inflation, like, you know, one of the problems that we have is that the, the number of laws is growing to the point where cops are spending a lot of time enforcing laws that are almost incomprehensible instead of being out and, you know, investigating rapes and burglaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it reminds me of this article that I read um, it's a, a viral. It was a viral video of cops in a city called Perth Amboy, New Jersey, and it was like six cops were harassing a group of teenage boys who were out riding their bikes because they didn't have licenses to ride their bikes. And it's like, you know, why in the world would you need a license to ride a bike? I never, <laughs> I never needed a license to ride a bike as a kid. Yeah. And you know, one of the cops is even on the video saying like, you think we want to be out here doing this, right? We've got more important things to be doing and yet they're harassing these kids. So, you know, when we're looking at an environment of limited resources, I think the cop is exactly right. It's like, why, why are you out here enforcing this law when, you know, according to statistics in this article, I mean, the Perth Amboy police were, you know, they were abysmal at clearing cases of rapes, robberies, auto theft, you know, so the question is why, you know, so when, when we look at like, what, what is our end result? What do we want? I think one of the things has to be is one of the necessary things we need to look at is like, are there other laws that are on the books that we're asking the police to enforce actually laws that are worth having? Are they worth enforcing? Why are they there? You know, yeah. why, why are we making teenage kids have licenses to ride bikes and why are six cops out there enforcing it when they could be doing something else? Um, and this is where, you know, one thing, 
when in my researching for this, I came across a really interesting idea. And it's the idea that, you know, the, the power structure, the government exists on sort of a foundation of two pillars, right? One is legitimacy um, and one is um, just brute force. Okay. And on the legitimacy side, right, the government would come along and they would say something like, you know, let's just take COVID, for example, they would, they would come along and say, listen, you know, we've, we've done all the research, right? Masks help. So we want everyone to wear masks. And if the government, if there's a lot of public trust built up, the government is seen as legitimate, right? People will just say, okay, well, the government says to do this, so I'm going to do it. On the brute force side, right? That's where you get into, you know, the government pointing guns at you and saying, you know, wear your mask. Now, obviously, we want it to be more on the legitimate side and less on the brute force side. Yeah. But, you know, throughout COVID and the the tweet from Biden, I think in the last week, and I think Kamala Harris sent out a swim, similar tweet of, you know, either get the vaccine or you're wearing a mask, right? That tells me that, government legitimacy is eroding, right? The, the, the public trust in government is, is going down. So we're being left with this idea of brute force in order to maintain its power. And I think that's what we're, what we're seeing is that yeah. people are, they're losing faith in government. Um, and so now the government is resorting to just being more forceful, having more laws, more rules, more regulations. And we're asking the cops to go out and enforce all of that. Yeah. And I think that's got us heading in the wrong direction. So I know what does that, how does that sound? Yeah. I mean, th- yeah, there's so much to unpack there that I, I think is what people need to be asking themselves about. The, fir- the first one is sort of where, uh, if we're going to measure the outcomes of, of policing and our investment in policing, you know, how, how do we actually measure that? So is it, is it based on the number of arrests? Is it based on the, uh, the number of cases that are closed around murders is it the actual murder rate and so and, and if you if let's just take the murder rate as an example um you're how much of that is related to poverty how much of that is related to uh, poor relationships so the manslaughter versus you know let's say premeditated type of activities and uh so it's 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 going to be complex let's just let's just put that there so you know trying to say that you're going to find a perfect system as, as you said is is impossible you're going to have to work with the imperfect, trying to get to better outcomes. So I think one question we should be asking ourselves is, is thinking through the Pareto principle of, of what we what we commonly say is 80-20. If, uh, are your cops focused on the 20% of crime that has the 80% of effectiveness in terms of providing safety or providing uh, property rights being enforced? Uh, that that benefits society, right, or benefits the community in which they're operating, and uh, I think a lot of people would, um, they don't. I'm not sure that they always get to that stage where they're actually looking at all of the uh, the data and asking themselves, you know, are we are we really getting to fewer fewer murders, right? Are we really getting to fewer instances of rape? If we're getting to, or if those events are occurring are we solving them? And if we're not solving them, why are we not solving them? And, and there's, there's a political layer that's going to create a barrier for us solving some of these challenges because there is a opportunity for oppor- uh, opportunistic politicians to use this particular topic because it, it impacts everybody as a wedge issue to try and further their career. And that's where a lot of this discussion is happening. So you got to be aware of that 
and cut to the chase of you know getting to the actual information that we need to be asking about. So I I I, I think yeah we need to be asking ourselves um, how do we actually define good policing? I, I agree that a universal approach so having a, a code that would that would exist across the entire country is not only um, unworkable but it's actually harmful uh, and and so the example I would look at is is living in New Mexico and spending time on border towns or driving through them in, in Arizona New Mexico and Texas that environment is very different from border towns that exist in Maine or Vermont or you know pretty much any town that has a border uh, with with Canada, right? Your crime patterns are different, right? The, the, the types of activities that you're having to deal with are different. So uh, you, while you need a, a universal code of conduct uh, to say that, that people are expected to, to be held to a certain standard, you can't expect that the, the outcomes that you're looking at are gonna be universal across the board, right? Um, so I, I, I think then that, that kind of points to one issue where we need to have a better discussion on the outcomes. And I think it's unreasonable to expect, unfortunately, that we're going to have zero police shootings. Um, I think we can have less. I, I, and, I, and I bring that up because that, that is an area where we have uh, so much of the discussion. I think we could certainly have less. Uh, and when you talk to cops, my my, uh, my sister's dating uh, a cop right now, and I've, I've had several discussions with him about different types of tactics that, you know, they go through. Uh, and, you know, they, they, he's, they do a lot of training on de-escalation, right? And I've heard discussions about teaching officers jujitsu and other types of tactics that could help them bring down some of the threat levels and, and also help make them better maintained for or prepared for those high stress times there's 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 another side of it too though right that that's a that's one one issue of the supply and demand that we could be working on investing in the cops we also need to be looking at where the violence is occurring with with the citizens right um that's that's an area that we have to be asking ourselves at a cultural level why this is happening if it's poverty induced is it a lack of standards are there other what are the factors that are leading to that it's it's multi-pronged right um there are things that we 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 should be measuring and looking at changing but um looking at only one and not the other means that we're going to have an unbalanced wheel at the end of the day which which exactly what i think you mentioned when we talked about this idea of well if you decriminalize drugs and you focus on on health well what, what oregon's doing is they just decriminalize drugs right it's now not um you know illegal to be using these drugs my question then is, well, are you offering the services for people at the same time to, to be more the, the Portugal model where, yeah, you're not going to be thrown in jail, but you also can't be doing heroin on the streets, right? That doesn't, and, and you know, call that some other law that you're breaking by being publicly intoxicated, but we're not allowing that. Um, uh, at the same time, we're not going to be trying to arrest you just for being a heroin addict, right? So I, I think, I think it's, Looking at this issue, it's it's just it's highly complex to understand what the outcomes even need to be. Um, but I think there's a couple of points that we'd all we could probably all agree on, which is that um, at a minimum we we'd really want the the most violent crimes to be attacked first and see violent crime reduction, right? Um, I, I, so I, I know I just I just shared a lot too. So I think you did and I did. Obviously, we have a lot of thinking here. Well, right. Based on what I said, what, what do you think I'm missing? What, what do you agree with? 
I, I mean, I, I pretty much agree with all of it. Um, I think, you know, to me, the, you know, again, the, the not not to beat a dead horse, but um, you know, this law inflation is one of our core problems, and I still think it goes back to the you know the loss of legitimacy by the state and their needing to ramp up the brute force side of their enforcement mechanism. So the more laws we have, right, the more opportunities there are for cops to come into conflict with citizens and yep. the more opportunity there is for violence. Um, and, and we've seen that, right? Some of these, uh, some of these shootings that we're hearing about recently, I mean, were for, you know, not the types of crimes that we maybe really as a society want to have enforced as crimes, um, you know, or they're, they're, you know, maybe minor, more minor offenses. Um, so like, you know, that's one area, right. That we need to look at. And, you know, when when we talk about, you know, how do we measure the success of our police forces, you know, again, you know, like if we do something like just, you know, arrests, well, that's just, that's going to induce the cops to just go out and make easy arrests. They're going to enforce the the easy laws, so to speak, to enforce, and they're going to let the harder ones go, or they're going to be less focused on the harder ones. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's it's really complex. You know, when I when it comes down to it, I almost think that you know maybe it just needs to be more of a subjective measure. Is like how safe do you feel? How safe does the do the citizens feel? Right. Um, not necessarily a you know we. You know, we made 32,000 arrests last year. We, you know, made, you know, investigated 16 murders. You know, I don't know. Um, and so, you know, when, when we measure things like that, right, we force a focus on those things yeah. and other things get ignored. Um, right. So, and, and I think that's the, that's the problem with the model we have, right? And, you know, you know, we talked about it earlier, right? Incentives matter, right? So when, when the cops have an incentive to enforce a certain to, to go after a certain crime or a certain act, right. They're going to do that. Yeah. So, you know, we need to make sure the incentives are aligned. And I think one of the things that we're seeing is that we, we we've almost turned the country into this, you know, cops versus the public thing to where the incentives are no longer in line are aligned yeah. when, when they should be right. The incentive should be a nice, peaceful, safe community, you know, where private property rights are protected. Mm-hmm. And that should be the incentive for the police. That should be the incentive for the publics, right? So how do we bring those incentives back in line? Right. Uh, and absolutely. maybe jumping ahead a little bit here, but, you know, one solution is the free market. But we'll, uh, <laughs> but well, we can, uh, you know, before we get into possible solutions, right? We, I mean, we can, if there's any more you wanted to talk about, right, on this, this idea of, you know, how we measure things, how did we get to where we're at? Um, do you have anything you want to add there? Well, yeah, it's, I guess what I would ask people is to be, is to allow your mind to explore the data and the the concepts before you allow the emotions to override um, those faculties. And so regardless of which side of the the fence you're on, um, if you are of the side, uh, and I'll just use it broadly, sort of the Black Lives Matter side that you see um, all cops as being, um, as you, as you may have said, kind of the enemy of the, the, the black community and these poor communities are out there to attack them. Well, the, look at the data and ask yourself if the data 
tells that exact story. Um, if, if you look at the people that have been shot by cops, uh, the, the ones that are people of color, and, and then you compare that to the altercations with cops. Uh, if, you're, if you're on the other side where it says, you know, blue lives matter, uh, all this, everything from black lives matter is, is, doesn't really deserve an airing or a discussion, ask yourself like, you know, are, 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 the, are the cops providing, or do they have a mentality that the citizens are, um, you know, they need to be protected, but they need to be done in, in, a, in a sort of a, a rugged way, right? So you have like the century guard kind of model versus community model. And, um, and are there other policies that are there that maybe should be questioned? You can, you can take some of this charge and, and, and strip it away to actually think about what are the right types of approaches we can have, again, with the end in mind, which is a safer community for all, right? Um, property rights enforced for all, not just some group here or some group there. We want it to have it for, for everybody. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we can talk a little bit about some of these solutions. The, the, what I've found, you know, in having this discussion and, and thinking about it offline that a lot of the solutions are really focused on specific metrics. And I'm not, it's not clear to me that we've actually agreed to those metrics, right? As we were saying, like, how do you actually measure outcomes? Some of the solutions that we're going to talk about here are, um, I mean, while they may be workable and they may actually be the, the best solution, it's, it's unclear to me that, that we've, we've kind of done enough of the agreement on the upfront work, right? The aligning those incentives. I think that's where a lot of that work needs to come back to. But um, let's 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 talk about some of the solutions that uh, that we've we've talked about. So uh, you want to start off with more of this free market concept, right? So so yeah. So let's let's think of just decentralization as being a third solution in addition to abolish and defund. Um, so we could when we say decentralization, I mean we can really decentralize by just getting rid of the um, state the state police force state enforcement of laws and move to a more free market um, solution. And that is, you know, basically we would have privatized police departments. So entrepreneurs would be taking on the mantle or be taking on the responsibility of providing community safety and communities, you know, whether it be through an HOA or, or some other organization, right, would hire a police force where it could even be done at the individual level. Like you, you, Paul and me, Scott, like we could go out and hire um, a company to police our property or we could potentially get together in blocks with our neighbors to hire a police force to, to um, patrol our property. And the idea behind that is that because there would be competition in the market, there would be an incentive for um, these police forces to have excellent response times um, and to do their jobs well. There would be an incentive for them to not beat up their customers or their clients um, and not hurt people. Um, there would be an incentive on the part of the entrepreneurs who own these companies to make sure that they're hiring the best people they can. Um, you can imagine a system where insurance companies are potentially going to be paying out any claims against these these cops. Um, so the insurance companies are going to have some pretty strict standards, I imagine, on um, who you can hire and what they're allowed to do. Um, and, you know, there's definitely holes in this discussion uh, or in this idea, right? Like we said, it, it it's not going to be 100% perfect um, because, you know, again, there, there are certain areas of the country where 
I don't think any private police force would dare send their people um, because it's just too dangerous. Right. Um, so that's, you know, one, one issue we'd have to overcome. Um, and, and the larger problem I think with this is that we've, we've grown up with the idea that the police have to be an extension of the government or they have to be a government entity. And so talking about the idea of getting rid of that government entity and privatizing our enforcement of the laws. I mean, that I think right now that is so far outside of the Overton window that it's not going to get any serious consideration. Yeah. Um, now I don't, I, I heard something a while back where I guess like there's an area in England where there's a private police force that is working in conjunction with a government police force. And it's actually proven to be, um, pretty successful, but I haven't heard a lot of other instances of anything like that happening. Um, sure. and you know, and maybe the solution is some sort of a hybrid, maybe we'd still have public police. Yeah. Um, but the homeowners or the, the, the citizens would be given the choice. They could opt out of public policing and go with private policing, sort of like they can opt out of the public school system to go with private schooling. Um, you know, I think we, we've already agreed that maybe maybe going the homeschooling route and allowing people to be their own law enforcement is maybe not the best idea. Um, so maybe we, we don't go that far. But, uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's really interesting. I know a lot of people have done research on this and they've looked at it and there's some some interesting theories behind it. But it's one possible solution. And again, like you'd, you'd, essentially you'd be using the market mechanism to try to keep the police forces in line and getting them to provide quality service. Right. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting question because I, I hadn't really thought, I guess I had given it some thought, but not, not a lot until we, we talked about it because I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, of, I'm also of that opinion. I struggle a lot with, with questions like, okay, so speed limits as an example, would with the community there's a law in the books that says you can't go 50 in a 20 zone um is the community going to enforce that um and if it crosses two different areas or are, are you know how are the private cops kind of enforcing it um but i i think okay so if you have that challenge with this this so you have that kind of question then you could you could flip it around and say well then would you want to just put in speed cameras and just give tickets like they did in chicago they actually took those out because they were too effective People actually slowed down and they didn't run red lights. The city lost revenue, so they took them out because they needed the revenue, uh, which, which goes back to the, the, the point of incentive. So you, you, when you're thinking about these solutions, ask yourself how much of it is, um, is the incentive for the city that needs to maintain a police force to, uh, to have revenue, right? And, and if you think about that incentive structure, how does that impact the, the type of policing that you have? Um, cause I know it's a big discussion on incarceration rates as well. So, 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 okay. So uh, private or decentralized policing, private policing is, is, is one idea that that's been on the table. Are there, are there others that you read that you thought were interesting? Yeah. So another one, it's in the same vein as decentralization. It's not going to private policing, but what it is, is it's essentially breaking up the large police departments into smaller departments and then having them effectively be in competition with each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so you would have maybe a police department for your neighborhood and a police department for your neighboring neighborhood. And um, 
you know, essentially the better performing police departments would, they would be able to expand their jurisdiction. The poor performing police departments would, would maybe get, get shrunk or eliminated. Um, Mm. So they're, so having the smaller police department would, the idea would be it'd make them more responsive to the community because they're a part of the community, right? It wouldn't be some big, you know, monolithic organization, you know, who's, you know, got a, a main office downtown and is enforcing the law in suburbs, you know, miles and miles away, right? Um, these people, they would be out in the community. They would be enforcing the laws in the community. Um, yeah. And the, the, again, the competition factor would, would come in and there would be an incentive to provide the best service that they could because they want to make sure that they maintain or even maybe grow their, their jurisdiction, Right. And then, you know, the idea is that pays can be, you know, the, the pay structure could be affiliate, could be associated to, you know, how good of a service they provide, how big the department is, you know, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, and it's pretty complicated. You know, one thing we would need is we would need to make sure that the, whatever government organization that is overseeing this whole process, right. We need to make sure that their incentives are aligned with the community or else, you know, they could, because we don't want them to start refusing to, you know, shut down bad police departments, you know, and and, and allowing, um, you know, poor conduct, poor conduct to go unpunished. Um, so, yeah. You know, a, a lot of the same situations that we have now. Um, so, you know, this is a solution that, again, it's going to it's going to rely a little bit on the benevolence of some government officials. Um, but, the you know, but the, the theories there that yeah. by just having these smaller decentralized police departments, um they're going to provide better community policing. Yeah. Which, again, I think it's an interesting concept to, to kind of walk through and and think about the, this idea of of departments kind of competing against each other and having the ability to the best ideas and the best tactics to, to win. You still need to come back and have agreement on, again, on the upstream side of it, of what exactly are we measuring and how are we uh, getting to those better outcomes? And, what, and, and having, having su- sufficient agreement on what those better outcomes are. Uh, if you have that, then, then the idea of competition becomes much more attractive because um, we really can see the difference in tactics, right, of, of what's being used and if we're actually achieving more of what our, our, our communities want, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, what, you know, one of the things you can look at in this model, too, is, you know, not that moving is easy. But because the, the departments are so small, it'd be pretty easy to move into another department's jurisdiction. So mm-hmm. if you don't like what your department's doing, right, you would see people moving out of that area or out of that neighborhood and right. possibly into neighboring areas right. or neighboring neighborhoods. Um, so people's actions would do a lot to speak to how they feel about the police department there. Um, sure. Of course, you know, you run into the you know situation of, well, is it the police that's causing them to leave? Or is it some other factor, you know, yeah. maybe it's road noise or there's, you know, a, a pig farm nearby that's stinking up the place or something. Um, right. But, you know, again, it, it, it's just a theory. I don't know. I wasn't able to find any instances where anyone had actually tried this, um, but I, I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah, um, I, I agree. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it'd be interesting to see how, how it would work out and yeah. exactly what... Uh, what structure would be put into place um, to make it work. But then I could see, 
you know, police unions possibly being an issue here um, with the idea that you're possibly going to pay some, some cops more and pay others less uh, Mm -hmm. based on performance or what department they're affiliated with. And I I could see a lot of, yeah, I could see a lot of headaches there with the, with the union wanting to get involved. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I I know that's a topic that is uh, highly controversial that could easily be discussed for a long time. And we're not, we're not really going into that. Right. And, and that part, I think that's by design of our conversation is more of what I consider more of a first principles kind of view rather than the tactical aspects of the challenge that while they could have merit. Right. Um, And, and I would, I would say, you know, police unions kind of sit in that incentive model question. Right. Um, I do find it fascinating that many of the proponents of unionization stop short when it comes to um, to police unions. They seem to be fine with government, with government employees being unionized. They seem to be fine with teachers and auto workers and all these other people. But when it comes to um, police, police people, they don't want them to be unionized. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of unions. Um for a variety of reasons. I, I think I probably need to revisit that position and see uh, what's changed. I know right now it feels like there's a bigger push for unionization, uh, kind of labor versus capital. But um, I, it, it's, I, I, again, I just find it a little perplexing um, if, if you're pro-union and then somehow the cops are the only unions you don't want to have. <laughs> but um, not, not that there can't be issues. Maybe you're saying, well, no, I just want to reform all unions. Okay, well, then, then we can talk about that. Right. Um, yeah. Uni- unions is another example of one of those good ideas gone bad, I think. Yeah, um, that's right. I definitely support well, the right of, of workers to get together and collectively bargain. But I think when the unions, when it moves to the point where the union is existing to benefit the union and not the employees anymore, then you start yeah. to, um, you start to see issues. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the fine line, right? Cause I agree. Everyone has a right to, to do that, to, to kind of organize in that way. Um, then there's another side of it that is uh, uh, more corrosive and less productive for everybody. So, yeah. um, so I, I, um, I guess, were there any other ideas? Cause I wanted to share one that I, that I came across that I, um, I found pretty interesting. No, yeah, those were the, the two main ones that I came across. So uh, okay. hit us with yours. So, so this one I think would fall more on the line of, of maybe what, uh, what you hear about when you talk about defund police um, or change our policing. So maybe it aligns a little bit more with some of the rhetoric from, from what we, what we may call black lives matter, but it's an article from in the New Yorker, uh, called bridging the divide between the police and the police. That's a question, but it, it talks about a suburb or, or, a, a neighborhood in New York called Brownsville, uh, that has a high poverty rate and high crime rate. And it talks about that they had a different leadership, uh, men who had different ideas about how best to deal with the, the problems in Brownsville. And it specifically speaks to this idea of broken window policing, which I think um, I'm just going to, my, my understanding of it is that basically you, you, you look at those infractions like a broken window and you police those because they prevent crimes down the way. So in areas of high poverty, if, if everyone's kind of cleaning up the neighborhood, you end up having less poverty. So that's an area where, um, I think the detractors or, or the, the proponents would say you're over-policing. And maybe as you talked about sort of this, this law inflation, they're, they're policing on everything possible. And so 
uh, one of the, the commanders thought that was the right way to go, very heavy-handed. A different one tried a, uh, I guess what you could call community approach. So they have these people that are called threat or, or conflict reductionist or violence reductionist. And uh, they're un- non-paid people from the community. So many of them had grown up in Brownsville and many of them had been part of the problem in their youth, you know, sort of maybe they were gang members, uh, they got into trouble with the police, but now they want to see uh, the neighborhood improve and they don't want to see that violence. And so the example was, you know, there's a night, um, there's two gangs, warring gangs that are, that are about ready to fight. They call one of these violence reductionists and the violence person comes out and talks to both of the gangs and is able to sort of quell the violence before it erupts. And uh, they had other instances like that. And they pointed to uh, a snapshot in time, which showed that as they were using more of these violence reductionists, they saw a decrease in, in um, police or, or gun, gun violence where the rest of the city was actually rising. So they used that as sort of an example of saying, well, you know, here's a tactic that we can use that is actually showing that we're getting less violence, which is exactly what we want, right, for our community. Uh, I thought it was interesting, you know, the questions of scalability are important um, because if, if you've got people that are invested in a community and are willing to take on that role, you have skin in the game that you may not have in other, in other places, right? So, um, you know, you have to ask how transportable is that model? Um, but then it also speaks to the fact that it's possible um, that <clears throat> what we want from our police isn't, um, isn't necessarily uh, to be going out there with gun. I, I say guns blazing. I don't, I don't, that's the wrong thing to say in this environment because people think you're shooting everybody. It's more of like if you go out there and it's a charged environment, as a police officer, I would expect you to be on your defense, right? You're not going to go out there without a gun uh, because these other people have weapons and they look like they're about to use them. Um, whereas the, the violence reductionists in this case are more willing to uh, take, uh, take that risk. And it's, it's again, it's unclear if it's uh, would be we'd be portable to other other places at the same rate, right? But I, I could see where this is like kind of this concept of defund the police. I, I don't I don't like the terminology defund the police because what I would be saying is well, if you want to use violence reductionist, you should be they they need to be uh, you need to have resources for them, right? Not only do you need to have people that are willing to do that job. Uh, again, these people are unarmed. They're, they're people from the community uh, that that are just interested in the community being safer. So you need to you need to find those people. But I mean, if they, they have they have other obligations in their lives, right? Like you, you got to have them available for when these these events happen, and they have to they have to be um, someone that the community respects. So I think it's worth exploring. I think I think you should we should also be cautious, just like we are with these other ideas um, that you know, either private forces or decentralization, uh, these ideas could work in some jurisdictions very well. And I, I don't think we should, um, we should take that off the table as we're looking at our police system and asking how can it be approved and how can it continuously be improved. I think, I think the opposite of that would be assuming that we can use the same model in every area and assuming that the, the needs are the same everywhere. I just, I just don't see that as, as workable. Right. I, I think we just have to accept that there's no, there's no perfect solution. Right. And, and what, what's a good solution for one community may not be the same solution that's good for another community. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, well, Scott, we're, we're about at our hour. Was there yeah, uh, something well, else you wanted to bring up? Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I think we can all agree that if we just went to a mentally unscripted model of policing where people let us make the rules and bring all their disputes to us, that, you know, we'd be a much better, much better community. <laughs> so, um, so beginning I, next week, I, I you know, agree. we're going to be holding yeah, court. Just, just give us and, all the you know, authority. Folks can, can come to us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they can just ask so, our, don't ask worry. Us the we, question. we won't Let's abuse it. Our, our two cents. No, no, not at all. Yeah, you can, you can trust. Right, yeah, like us. the, you know, the, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. No, um, oh, no, I think that was a good discussion. Uh, not, not quite as lighthearted as I thought it would be, but yeah. <laughs> so, uh, good. We're, we're waiting for the humor. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Um. So, all right. Well, well. Thanks that's, everyone that's for, what for tuning does in, to you folks. Yeah, yeah, that's what it does. It softens the brain and it, it makes you angry and right. uh, ordinary mean. And uh, <laughs> well, well, thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, we hope you got something out of this discussion in terms of how you see this topic and how are you going to approach it when you're when you're sharing it with other people. Let us know your thoughts uh, wherever you're listening to this. Um, give us a comment. Uh, find us on mentallyunscripted.com. You can drop us a note there and and say, hey, what? here's what you're missing. Here's some other ideas I've heard. Uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll revisit this topic. There's enough to unpack here. We didn't talk about incarceration. We didn't talk about um, the war on drugs um, and you know, even some of the tactical solutions that I think are, are interesting. There's a lot more that we could do uh, and unpack here. So I'm sure we'll be back. But um, until next time, take care, be well, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.